The SpeedCafe.com podcast is brought to you by Morris, the official finance partner of Speed Cafe. Speed! 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 Speed Cafe! Speedcafe.com. Your daily racing fix. Check it out. Speed Cafe. <laughs> Hi there, race fans. I'm Mark Fogarty, and this is the Speed Cafe podcast. On the eve of the Boost Mobile Gold Coast 500, the talk is all about aero parity. The Ford Mustang gets aero tweaks after another parity review was triggered in the Repco Bathurst 1000. The big news, though, is confirmation that supercars will send a Mustang and a Chevrolet Camaro to the States to be tested in a full-scale rolling road wind tunnel. It's a multi-million dollar exercise aimed at ending the Gen 3 aero parity argument once and for all. But what is wind tunnel testing and why is it better? To help explain that and all the other parity technical jargon, my guest this week is Dick Johnson Racing Chief Engineer Perry Kappa. DJR is the Ford homologation team and Kappa is the backroom boffin who headed the Gen 3 Mustang design project. With the help of Ford Performance in Detroit and Ford Australia engineers, the Shell V-Power racing team has been fighting a rearguard action all season, leading the effort to bridge the parity gap to the Camaro. Kappa provides an understandable guide to the arcane world of wind tunnel testing and Gen 3 technical parity. We did, of course, invite Supercars to provide a senior technical official to explain the what and the why of it all. As of this recording, no response. Perry Kappa, Chief Engineer at Dick Johnson Racing, the Ford Gen 3 homologation team. Welcome to the Speak Cafe podcast to try and help us understand to demystify a lot of the technical jargon surrounding, well, the endless parity debate and the latest developments in aero testing. So Perry, wind tunnel testing has been approved by supercars, shipping a couple of cars, a Mustang and a Camaro off to the States for some big ticket testing. So not everyone knows what wind tunnel testing is. So what is it? How does it work, and what are the benefits? Um, yeah, that's a it's uh, it's probably a really good topic to discuss. That it, it, it must uh, it must seem uh, quite quite an odd sort of thing that we're doing um, to an extent, but it's widely used um, in open wheel series, um, Formula One, NASCAR, IndyCar, and uh, and and for supercars, we it's been a bit of a, a ground that is too far to reach, um, partly because there's not a wind tunnel in Australia that uh, is suitable um, or up to the um, the level of technological um, advancement that's needed um, to do it to a, a level required, basically. So, um, yeah, as you say, off to the US. Um, we're uh, very fortunate to be using um, a wind tunnel uh, that is widely regarded as um, the the one of the best or the best in in uh, North America, potentially just behind uh, 
the the wind tunnel that Ford themselves are working on uh, or are about to commission. But um, this wind tunnel's uh, yeah called uh, Wind Shear. It's in Concord, uh, North Carolina, and um, yeah, essentially the wind tunnel uh, acts as a runway like we have done in the past, except the the vehicle is not moving. Um, so the wind passes over the car and what that does is it allows you to have um, a very accurate, repeatable conditions. Uh, the temperature is controlled. So the air temperature um, is, is, is uh, controlled. The speed of the, of the air is um, very well controlled and can be dialed up to whatever uh, speed you, you require. Um, within reason, obviously, they have a maximum. And uh, what that does is allows us to um, basically have, uh, the easiest way to think of it is to have scales under each wheel uh, or each axle, and, and that uh, allows us to measure the downforce. Um, the one other critical thing that does go into this is that there's, um, there's a belt, basically, that runs underneath, which, is, um, which allows you to simulate what is something something that's very critical um, when it comes to aerodynamics, especially when the uh, the body of the car gets low uh, to the ground, and that uh, that belt basically simulates the road moving under the car, and that moves the wheels and everything at the same speed that the wind is at. So effectively, um, if you're measuring at 200 kilometers an hour airspeed, well that that belt is moving at 200 kilometers an hour underneath the car, um, but the car is static above that. So it's uh, it's quite quite a feat of engineering, uh, the wind tunnel in itself. Yes, well, this is when we hear talk about a, a rolling road wind tunnel, that's what you're discussing there, but also it's quite key that this wind tunnel they'll be using is a full-size wind tunnel. That is, you can, it's not for scale models, it's a an actual full-size car which as you suggested earlier, um, there isn't one in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, there's a couple of tunnels in Australia, but, but uh, nothing, nothing big enough to, uh, to do it accurately and definitely nothing with a rolling road effect. So this wind tunnel testing then, from what you're saying, it's all about repeatability and therefore consistency of results. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, removes removes the uh, inconsistency of um, the wind gusts and variability to do with weather, uh, which is which is uh, always plagued aerodynamic testing on on a runway. Um, the other thing that it removes is any any mechanical side of things. So there's the engine does not run, the drive line does not run. Um, so more or less, you're removing all of that from the uh, from the equation so you're just drilling down to um yeah what the aerodynamics of the car uh, essentially so the other thing that's coupled in with all of that is the uh the way they map through they they uh they still have active rod so they have actuators in place of the dampers so that allows them to uh, work through a range of uh, ride heights um, much the way we began in probably the last uh, four or five years uh, in the VCAT testing where the the active ride was introduced and that allowed 
um, more ride heights to be achieved. Um, that that same or very similar system is used in in the wind tunnel uh, to speed up the uh, the process. Well, we've seen for many years in Formula One uh, where there are, as you suggest, in motor racing, the most sophisticated wind tunnels. It's not perfect, but it's as close as you can get to the real world, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it is it is very good. It is it is almost the real world. Um, you're using real world components, um, and yeah, eliminating as I said, any other external influences that can uh, that can impact the results. Um, the other thing that you can and we will be doing in this wind tunnel at this testing is um, measuring the cars in your and and what that that is something that we've uh, never been able to do um, and so what what that means is essentially um, simulating how the car will enter a corner and when it's when it's uh, cornering um, the car is actually in what we call a state of your relative to the air that's um, that's passing over it so the easiest way to think about that is um, the the rear of the car uh, at it, uh, being pushed to the side relative to the front of the car. So you effectively create a situation where the back of the car um, is is off to one side, um, and and what that does is that that gives us a greater level of um, of parity. I, I guess is probably the easiest way to say it when when we'll be able to measure both cars in that situation. Um, they'll obviously also do the cars in roll, but roll is much less, uh, much less, much less important to the the vehicle performance than than yaw is. I'm glad you raised that. I was going to ask you about measuring aero performance in yaw because, well, it's important simply because cars also go around corners. <laughs> Absolutely, and there's, a, and there's a, yeah, so there's a different airflow than just what's happening in a straight line. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, it's, uh, it's not perfectly representative of what happens um, in real life when you're cornering the, the way that your is done in the wind tunnel, but it is, uh, it's as close as you can get. All right. So Perry, the expense of sending these cars over to the United States and booking time in a wind tunnel, um, it's not going to be a cheap exercise. Is it, is it going to be worth it? And by that, I mean, once we've done that, is that going to shut down all the parity, debate, argument, dissension? Well, as far as aerodynamics is concerned, anyway. Um, look, I, I would say it should. Um, if the test is run well and um, and we maximise the time that's available um, to us and ultimately come out of the, the, the running with uh, everyone in agreement that we have, we have um, parity, then, yeah, I believe it will. As well as this wind tunnel testing, we'll be having more engine testing. And that, as we understand it, is going to happen on a transient dyno in Melbourne. And also coming are torque sensors. Uh, what is a transient dyno? What does it do? What's the torque sensor do? Um, okay, so... A transient dyno uh, is that um, is essentially an electrically controlled dyno. Um, so what what that means is uh, your typical engine dyno has a 
some way of controlling the output of the engine, and and typically that is a um, a water a water brake um, or a similar device. There are other dynos that are um, what we call eddy current, um, which means they use essentially a very similar method as what the transient dyno does, but they are not able to drive the engine either. So the transient dyno is able to motor the engine. Um, so it's able to simulate uh, overrun conditions um, and uh, critically, it's able to uh, step step the vehicle and the engine, sorry, more importantly, step the engine through um, much more controlled um, and accurate tests that um, will allow us um, to work through the other aspects um, of the engine and, and overall vehicle performance that we can't do right now. And, and I guess moving on to the, mm. yeah, moving on to the torque sensors. Um, the torque sensors, uh, they're, they're not something new to the category, actually. Um, this type of torque sensor is, um, but previously the category has touched on um, on torque sensors uh, in the past, and we had a single uh, torque sensor at the um, coupling out of the back of the gearbox in Car of the Future. Um, I'm not sure if that was widely known, but they were, they were a device that was used by the category um, to monitor uh, installed engine power. Now, those, those devices um, proved to be uh, not, not as accurate as hoped, um, but as with all things, technology moves on, and and uh, now we're more than uh, ten years on from uh, Car of the Future, and when those torque sensors were first commissioned. So, uh, as I say, technology moves on. These these new torque sensors are actually on the axles, and so there's two in each car. Um, so there's one on each axle, um, and what that does is measure the the uh, the twist in that shaft. And um, it can equate that to how much torque is uh, being output. Um, so that's a uh, that's going to be a very important part of the next steps, and um, essentially being able to understand the in, the installed power uh, that is being achieved uh, in, under all conditions. Um, so these sensors, in particular, are widely used in uh, World Endurance Championship. IMSA, um, and uh, now in NASCAR, as well as um, I believe they're going to be in GT3. So um, they're used to more or less control and regulate uh, the achieved output of uh, the hybrid uh, World Endurance Championship cars now. So extremely accurate, and um, uh, it's a new tool, but it's going to be uh, very handy and very useful. Indeed, so a lot of work going on and to be done. Um, many fans and me would ask, why has it been so difficult to achieve technical parity with Gen 3 than, than, than apparently, well, with the previous Car of the Future, Gen 2, Gen 2.5, even that was a bit controversial. But, yeah, why is it so complicated with Gen 3? Um, look, the aerodynamic one, uh, I think we can, we can set that one aside more or less the, the aerodynamic side of things. Um, 
I, I ultimately think it will come down to something that we haven't been able to measure very well. Um, so I believe I believe we're moving much more closer uh, in the right direction with uh, with what's going on uh, aerodynamically um, from the engine side of things. More or less, what uh, what's transpired is a, a massive change in in en engine architecture um, for both sides, really. Um, less lesser so for um, the GM engine that's being used, um, but still not discounting for those guys. It's it's still been a big uh, challenge and a and a, a massive new project from from that side of, for the engine and. Um, as an example, using an all aluminium block with a steel liner, um, single throttle body, which is very, which is common across both engines. So there are there are some similarities, but there's also some um, large architectural architectural differences, and and those differences are what we didn't have uh, under the previous um, um, engine regulations, and so that that fundamentally means that new and more expanded parity tools are required to achieve parity. And that's, um, that's a work in progress. It certainly is and certainly has been. So heading into the Gold Coast 500, a further parity adjustment for the Mustangs after the review was triggered following the in the Bathurst 1000. So um, the changes to the Mustang are well, some aero tweaks to put it simply, you know, to the front, the sides, and 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 the rear wing. So, how did how did you guys come up with those change uh, changes? We've we've heard the benefit or the um, it's going to shift the aerodynamic balance rearward again. How did you actually come up with these changes? And before the parity review trigger was set off, how did you know they were going to work? Yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a really good question, folks. So getting into the technical side of things and how we we go about uh, that body of work. Um, obviously, a deficit or a uh, a target has to be established, so something to work towards. Um, we then go away uh, with um, in conjunction with for performance, and we work uh, using CFD to iteratively design uh, changes um to the car so um the parts that you see on the car are fourth and fifth versions um at the front of the car so they're not the first version um, so the multiple versions are trialed to understand what is going to uh, work and achieve um, the targets that we're setting out to achieve um but um yeah it's a it's a very in-depth process and we're very lucky to have um the tie-up with four performance they've um, been extremely uh, helpful um, and yeah, it's fair to say we wouldn't be able to do it without them. So uh, that that resource allows us to, as I say, work away, um, understand where the difference lies, and then um, uh, come up with a, a design uh, that needs to meet styling requirements too. I might add. Um, so uh, that that then goes into uh, track testing, and we validate. Uh, different versions of those. So we might take to the track two or three different versions of those front items. Um, and then we work through ultimately seven or eight different combinations. That sounds like a lot, but um, they're actually very small 
refinements of each each, uh, each particular item and uh, come come to a package that we uh, are happy with. Cynics suggest that, well, as a group, and I mean you guys, the homologation team, Ford Performance, everyone associated, your plane just got it wrong and you're playing catch-up. Is that fair? <laughs> um, no, I, I would say no. Um, and it's easy for me to say that from from the inside, I guess. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, additional information um, that people aren't privy to. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the configuration um, we we arrived uh, with many different options for our car, and we went uh, went aerodynamic testing with the category, and a combination was chosen, and that's how we started the year. And then since then, uh, we've um, we've refined uh, that whenever the opportunity arose. Um, obviously, there was uh, there was some new and additional data that came up through. Uh, supercars CFD actually um, to suggest that there was a disparity, which is why we obviously went away and proposed a solution uh, prior to Bathurst. But now having um, now having the official trigger, we're allowed to uh, uh, propose a configuration, and that has gone through the process with supercars. How much do you expect it will help it? Uh, like aerodynamically, yeah. Yeah, aerodynamically, um, the simulation uh, that we use uh, suggests that it's uh, it's it's probably probably half of the deficit. That uh, is probably the easiest way to say it. Uh, I can put it into a a, a, a lap time amount, um, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's part of the the deficit. So we'll take anything we can get. All right, Perry Kappa, thank you for your time and thanks for helping to explain Hi. some of the complexities that are going on. And um, well, hopefully in a few months from now, at the start of next season, we won't be having any of this discussion. Yeah, no problem, folks. Happy to uh, try and uh, explain some of the technical side of the uh, the process. Okay, maybe not one of my most robust interviews, but Kappa was as open and informative as he could be about a touchy subject. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Supercar's reluctance to engage with motorsport media about hot topics is a disservice to fans. That's it for now. I'll be back late on Monday with all the latest breaking news on the Speed Cafe newscast. In the meantime, full coverage of all the major racing action around the world at speedcafe.com. And don't forget our Grassroots Racing Podcast featuring versatile national racer Jake Camilleri. I'm Mark Fogarty. Thanks for listening. You've just listened to a Speed Cafe Pod Hub production. 